millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show... We're talking about how to survive the climate upheaval with Gaia Vins and her new book, Nomad Century. Gaia Vins is an honorary senior research fellow at UCL and a science writer and broadcaster interested in the interplay between humans and the planetary environment. She has held senior editorial posts at Nature and New Scientist and her writing has appeared in The Guardian, The Times, and Scientific American. Her research takes her across the world. She has visited more than 60 countries, lived in three, and is currently based in London. And in 2015, she became the first woman to win the Royal Society Science Book of the Year Prize solo for her debut, Adventures in the Anthropocene, which we talked about on A Little Atoms many years ago. And then also subsequently Gaia's second book, Transcendence. Her new book is Nomad Century, how to Survive the Climate Upheaval. Gaia, welcome back. Hi, I'm so pleased to be here. Tell us then, first of all, what the idea is behind Nomad Century. So it's basically asking people to pull our collective head out of the uh, sand and look up and realise that there are places that climate change is happening and there are places around the world which will become unadaptable unlivable, uninhabitable, and migration is inevitable. So, you know, it's taken, I've been working in this field for more than a decade now, and it's taken us a long time even to move the conversation from mitigation to adaptation, to acknowledge that, you know, we can't avoid climate change now, climate change is going to happen. And therefore, even while we mitigate, even while we decarbonize, cut our carbon dioxide emissions, we also are now going to have to face up to the fact that the climate is changing our world and we need to adapt to this changed world. But now we need to go further. Um, We need to acknowledge that there are some places that cannot adapt, some people that cannot adapt, and they're going to have to move. There are places that will be unlivable for one reason or another. And these places are going to generate large numbers of people, large numbers of migrants looking for safety, as is their right. And rather than sort of lurch from one crisis, one catastrophic disaster and humanitarian crises to another, wouldn't it be better if we planned this, if this became a planned and managed migration 
something which could actually develop a better global society, which is fairer, safer, wealthier. You know, it could be a good Anthropocene. We could plan this and make it work. And really what I want to do with Nomad Century, I propose a solution to this this terrible climate crisis that we're facing. And what I want to do with this is I don't expect everyone to completely agree with my recommendations, with my proposals, but I do want people to engage in it and start a conversation about what on earth we can do. Because at the moment, the conversation, the narrative around migration is, it's highly politicised, it's really toxic, it's limited to, you know, how can we keep the migrants out? You know, what new policy can we, like really dramatic things like sending people to Rwanda or, or whatever. But it's very much against trying to stop this migration that we have at the moment, which is really just a trickle. It's, it's a very small number of people, especially compared to what we're facing, which is going to be an unprecedented scale. You know, it's going to be millions. And I want to move the conversation. I want to move the narrative from this kind of this very weird, negative, toxic description of migrants and refugees and asylum seekers to something which is much more practical, much more realistic, and accepts that, for example, in this country, the vast number of people aren't hugely negative about migrants at all. People have never been so positive about migration. A lot of surveys already show that. But also, if you talk to business leaders, if you talk to farmers, if you talk to basically any sector, we are crying out for more immigrants. We actually have a really big problem and we don't have enough people here. And that's because of policies to limit migration. It's, it's you know, people can't get their teeth fixed. They can't, um, we can't pick the fruit in our fields. It's a disaster which could be solved by better migration policy. So I want us to, I want to start a conversation now. So you take generally, I mean, the temperature scale varies in the book, but let's just take as a sort of standard a four degree temperature rise by the end of the century by 2100. So where does that, where does that come from, that figure? Yeah, this is, this is something again, which is not really truly being acknowledged. I mean, there's been such a battle I guess, to get people to understand that climate change is is a crisis, it is an emergency, it's something really serious that policymakers need to get behind and get round the table negotiating, discussing how we're going to limit temperature rise. So the conversation has very much been fixated on this one and a half degrees, which is basically the, the maximum temperature rise at which things like coral reefs might survive. Um, I mean, they would be very few and most coral reefs would go extinct at that at that temperature rise. But nevertheless, some could survive. So so it's it's things like that. It would be sort of much more um, survivable. But actually, if you look at the data, we're not limiting our emissions enough. We're, we're very, very unlikely to limit our temperature rise to one and a half degrees by the end of the century. And even if we did, even if in 2100, the temperature rise was one and a half degrees above pre-industrial temperatures. That would require us overshooting considerably in the meantime, and then coming back down to one and a half degrees. So if you think about what we're facing at the moment, I mean, while I'm talking to you, it's lovely and sunny, pretty hot, but Europe is suffering a really quite horrible heat wave at the moment um, of temperatures pushing 40 degrees across Germany, 
France, Spain, exceeding 40 degrees in some places. Um, The United States also has a heat wave. Uh, Last week, thousands of cattle died of heat exhaustion in America. Meanwhile, India has had months, India and Pakistan, months of a crippling, crippling heat wave. And currently, India and Bangladesh are experiencing horrible floods where you know, millions of people are sort of marooned and can't, you know, have no access to fresh water and all sorts of other problems. And loads of people are being displaced by these emergencies. And that's at 1.2 degrees Celsius. And we we really are going now from one crisis to another, one climate extreme to another. Every single day, there is another unprecedented heat wave or unprecedented storm or unprecedented um, flash flood, something like that. And it will carry on because it's because that's the way the graph is going. So if we look more realistically at um, what the predictions are for um, temperature rise by the end of the century, following the emission pathways that we're currently that we currently seem to be headed along, and um, scientists model these according to various scenarios of how much carbon dioxide we're going to emit. Um, And the moderate pathway puts us where we do limit our um, emissions. You know, we do decarbonize our economies. That puts us at a temperature rise by the end of the century of somewhere between three and four degrees being pretty likely. So this is a, unfortunately, because it's horrible, it's really horrendous, but this is actually a pretty reasonable temperature rise for the end of the century, three to four degrees. So I kind of picked that for you know, part of the book. But, you know, it's difficult because this is we are talking about the future and lots of things could happen. You know, we could completely change the way we emit. We could use geoengineering to bring the temperature down. There are options where we don't go to that temperature, but that's looking the most likely at the moment. And so that's kind of what I've looked at in terms of what we might expect then in terms of our food production, Uh, population movements, desertification of key areas, river flow responses to to all of this. And it's um, it's a massive, massive change. Yes, I was going to say, what does the world look like in 2100 if the if the temperature goes up three or four degrees in terms of its habitability? Well, basically what it means is a huge swathe of the tropics. And this is the place where well, it's where our species emerged, where we evolved. We are a tropical ape, but it's it's where the majority of the world's population lives at the moment, billions of people. It's that equatorial region is, um, it cuts right through Asia, Africa, Latin America. The tropics not only have you know, enormous populations, but they also have some of the most important cities, um, some of the most important bread baskets. Um, rice baskets, you know, this is a key area to where humans have lived for most of their history. So, and these areas, large parts of them will be uninhabitable, at least for some of the year. And, And not just for people, but also crop production. I mean, at the moment, we're seeing a 1.2 degrees Celsius, we're seeing large places where people cannot work outside after 10am. So, you know, farmers can't work their fields. You know, and and people, most people live in cities now, and this is a big migration as well, people moving to cities. And when they move to cities, they live in slums and slum areas 
can be, you know, six degrees hotter than the rest of the city because they are extremely dense. They have very narrow alleyways in between the houses. So you don't get that air circulation. And also the actual buildings themselves are constructed from um, concrete and um, steel, corrugated steel, you know, so they're, they're just like ovens. And, you know, there are a few trees or other shading structures. So they're pretty unbearable places and people there can't, you know, they don't have air conditioning and they don't have the power anyway, because when you get these really big heat waves, you get um, load shedding, you get power outages. So, yeah, they're just basically uninhabitable. So people are going to have to move and they're going to move to other cities and they're going to move basically to where it's safer. And at the moment, we don't have we don't have any sensible pathway for people to move from these dangerous areas to the more habitable parts of our planet, which will be the majority of that will be in the far north of the globe. So we'll come back in the second half to where we can actually go and how we're going to do that. Before that, you talk in the book about the concept of migration as something that human beings are a migratory species, always have been for most of our history. And it's only very, very recently that the idea of the nation state and nationalism has come to take hold. So tell us something about about that idea, about why we should look upon human beings as being a species that migrates when it needs to. Yeah, so I, I, I say in the book that migration made us, and it, and it really did in a very fundamental way, because it was our ability to move around past, past our own sort of family groups and to form these bigger groups with strangers and then rely on them as we moved to different locations, sharing resources, sharing our genes with each other, sharing our cultural knowledge that really created these big, vibrant, connected societies, these networks that allowed our culture to evolve to such a sophisticated such a sophisticated extent that we we basically took over the world we now dominate the rest of the natural world so i mean you know we we emerged in africa on the african continent and and, and the tropics is basically where most of the other primates still live but we were able to to sort of uh, escape our our niche our evolutionary niche and part of that was through migrations. It was that ability, first of all, to carry water, which allowed us to go longer distances away from water sources. So we could carry the resources we needed in pouches and, and exchange it with other strain. You know, if we ran out of water, it's likely if we came across another group, we could ask them to share the water. I mean, other other species don't have that ability. But as we moved around the planet, we gained these strategies of networking with with other groups and it really is these connected networks that allow us to migrate this cooperative way that we work as humans that allows us to migrate and we can only create those networks because we migrate because we share so many different ideas technologies genes resources with other individuals and with other tribes or societies in different places. And it's the combination of these different sort of cultural traits that come together, this fusion to produce new cultural traits, to produce 
more sophisticated technologies and different ways of doing things that has allowed us to basically take over the planet. We change our environment as we go. We don't just adapt to our environment. So as a result, you know, we can live in the Arctic in houses made of ice bricks, just as we can live, you know, in a, in a desert with skins as, as our, um, that we carry around as, as nomads. And, you know, for most of our history, the vast majority of our history, we were nomadic. We moved around following our food. You know, we were hunter gatherers. Um, it was only with the advent of agriculture that we started settling. But even when we settled, it was just our physical bodies essentially that settled. And what I mean is that we we also relied on this the secondary migration, which other animals don't have. So we we also rely on the on the migration of our stuff. So even though we were settled, all our stuff moves around. So you know, I'm relying now on everything that has come from somewhere else. Only the air that I'm breathing and the land I'm directly standing on comes from here. I don't get the food I need or the materials I need or the tools I need or anything from this small area that I live on. I rely on the migration of stuff all around the world. And because of the networking of our society, that stuff can come from different continents and it can be produced, um, it can be mined from one place and then worked on in another place, then marketed and sold and so on in all sorts of different places, different locations as that material, as that, I don't know, book or, or mobile phone or pen or something makes it to me. It's gone on a huge migration and that allows me not to migrate. But we do anyway migrate. I mean, it's completely normal, completely natural. In fact, if we don't, I, I don't personally know anybody who is living in the same house that they were born in. Everybody I know has moved to, you know, at least to a different town. A large number have moved across borders or different countries, different cities. A lot of people I know, at least one of their parents is from a different place. It's unusual, especially for people who live in cities to have been sort of sedentary for too long. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Gaia Vins, and we're talking about her book, Nomad Century, How to Survive the Climate Upheaval. And Gaia, so let's take into account that, you know, the worst case scenario happens in terms of the temperature, and by 2100, there's a, a four degree rise. But the best case scenario happens in terms of us deciding at some point in the next 80 years to be ready for it. Where is everybody living in 2100? Well, at four degrees, they they will not be able to survive in the tropics, certainly not in um, the kinds of size of population that we have at the moment. I mean, there's eight billion of us. And if populations do manage to survive in the tropics, they will be in heavily engineered environments that could support a very small population. So most people will be living at, you know, towards the poles. I mean, if you look at a globe, there isn't actually a lot of land in the South Pole around the, I mean, there's Antarctica, obviously, and and some of that will become ice free. And the potential there is for people to live there, actually. Um, And there's Patagonia, which is a possibility. But most of the land that is, um, that will be habitable will actually be the North. So let's think about places like Canada. Um, Scandinavia, north parts of Russia, Greenland, um, Scotland, Ireland. There are places that will actually benefit. I mean, they will everywhere on Earth will have um, will be affected by this climate crisis that we're we're currently facing, and everywhere will have to adapt. And extreme weather, you know, will occur everywhere. But some places will also see some benefits of the new temperature rise, for instance. So in Scotland, the growing seasons will become longer and better for um, a large number of crops. Scotland is actually, because of the geology of the the land, is um, still rising after um, the end of the last ice age. It's got a glacial rebound. So the glaciers that were pressing down on the on on Britain um, in Scotland, they melted, obviously, and the land is still rebounding slowly because geology takes time. And that rebound is actually occurring faster than sea level rise. So the coastlines in Scotland will not be eroding in the same way as in the southeast and west of Britain, where we will see great loss of coastlines um, through extreme weather events that erode it and sea level rise and more violent storms etc so yeah scotland's not bad place so whenever you if you talk about migration people are immediately now thinking of say they live here in london and people coming to an an existing city and how they're going to fit in with that infrastructure 
of course, London is going to be one of these places that's going to be, you know, partially underwater by that time. So what we're really talking about here is the majority of people, and we are talking about, you know, billions or many millions of people moving to somewhere where currently there is nothing, where currently there is no infrastructure. So let's talk a bit about how we will have to build cities and mega cities and the associated infrastructure in places like, you know, northern Canada, northern Scandinavia, Siberia, etc. How will we do that? Yeah, so this is this is going to be a huge upheaval and it's going to involve a lot of the migrants building their own cities because that's the only way, you know, they're the workforce. But it's also got to be built in a sustainable way. Like we can't just put up really highly polluting concrete blocks. We have to make it sustainable. So there are plenty of techniques and plenty of um, materials that can be used that have already been developed. So we don't lack the knowledge, but a lot of these are untested at the moment, certainly on the scale that we'd need them. So if we look at migrant cities, and there's been quite a lot of data on this, it looks like density is the most important thing. So we need these cities to be dense and not just in terms of population, but in terms of um, the zoning of what goes on. So it doesn't work to have a zone of just residential. And then far away is the zone of commerce. And then the zone of uh, retail is somewhere else and industry is somewhere else. They have to be integrated and they have to be dense, but there also has to be um, potential for interaction of people. So what seems to be the optimum in terms of in terms of housing is blocks about four to six stories high. So not these really tall tower blocks where people who have just arrived in a country without any without a community that they know without friendships and family and so on just arrive in a place where it's very hard for them to interact and make those connections which is what happens with a lot of these very tall high rises that become dumping grounds for um, asylum seekers or or just poor people from the same city. Four to six stories seems to be optimum for that in terms of getting the density right and getting the um, social interactions right. Um, They need opportunities as well to improve their lives, which means opportunities to study or opportunities to become entrepreneurs or open their own businesses or find jobs in various places. So There needs to be options for people to rent spaces or to inhabit studios, that sort of thing. But also these cities have to be sustainable in terms of their carbon emissions, energy use, resource recycling, water usage, all of those sorts of things. So they have to generate their own energy. They have to keep the water circulating and cleanly throughout, um, if not the the local neighbourhood block, um, at least the building. So, so you get this much more sort of circular use of a city, um, of a city's resources, rather than them being just sort of consumers of everything around them, which is what cities largely are now. Um, but because people will be moving to cities and because agriculture, power generation... Um, manufacturing and production and and basically everything is going to be radically transformed by climate change over the next century. We're going to see a lot 
of land which is currently devoted to some of these things being left to to be colonized again recolonized by nature so wildlife will take over some of these places and that will play its own role in improving biodiversity and restoring temperatures and you know reducing carbon emissions from the atmosphere people listening might think that you know this idea of building all of these cities out of nothing seems like science fiction i mean it is 100 years into the future but um, something on a not too dissimilar scale is already going on all the time in China, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, China has been building these huge cities really over the last sort of 20 years. And it's undergone this huge transformation from a, an almost entirely rural population to a massively urban population. I mean, it will be entirely urban pretty soon. Um, It is possible to build cities. I mean, they're not particularly sustainable, a lot of these cities, and some of them are already being retrofitted and being retrofitted faster than actually our cities are. But what we face is so extreme and so dramatic that we will have to change the way we think about these these huge tasks and these you know of, of building a city, just as you know, when we were faced with the COVID pandemic. We watched China suddenly put up um, a massive hospital in, I don't know, seven days or nine days or something. They From the ground, they just developed this sort of field hospital, a fully functioning modern hospital with everything in it. I mean, you watch those uh, those sort of animations of how they did it, the sort of sped up video, and it's quite incredible. And, you know, we might think of, China is being sort of exceptionalist in this. But then when the pandemic came to us, we also had to do something similar. You know, we had to build and adapt. There was a, in the Excel Centre in London, they managed to completely change that into a hospital. It's a kind of bare conference centre, it's nothing. And they turned it into a fully functioning hospital really quickly. Um, So we can do it. We know we can do it. And there'll certainly be enough people and we do have the resources, you know, we have the wood, we have the, um, we have all the materials that we need. We just need to make sure that we don't use the same techniques that we have used in the past. And we won't be able to, because this is such a crisis that we won't be able to sort of follow the old methods of doing any of this. You know, there are sustainable ways of making um, buildings out of, out of laminated wood that are actually, actually renders them stronger than steel fireproof but very very light and of course wood is a something that can be grown and as it's grown it sucks up carbon dioxide so then when you store that carbon dioxide in a building with the material you're doing your bit and that's actually not an insignificant change a huge store of carbon when you think about the scale of the cities that we're going to be building um, and some cities, you know, will carry on and um, be so. So London may well become too big to fail. So there are places in London which will certainly be underwater and, and you know, will be lost. We will put up barriers, but they will be inundated a lot. But then there are places which won't. And what will happen almost certainly is that London will exist in some form, but it will it will expand towards the higher towards the hills and away from the river and away from the flood zones and will adapt and will 
you know, absorb a lot of migrants, some from old London and some from elsewhere on the globe. So a lot of cities will will move and adapt. Some cities will completely have to be abandoned, you know, because they're just unviable. And some cities will have to be built entirely from scratch where there isn't even a village. But also, you know, this will go on all century. But as we restore the planet and if we if we do manage to restore temperature in one way or another, perhaps through geoengineering, which I think will probably be used within a couple of decades, um, if not sooner, either fewer people will have to migrate or some people will even be able to return. So, you know, it's a question of of our decisions because the future is ours to make and we can decide you know, what temperature we want the planet to be and how to, you know, how to make the next decades work for us. And I hope that we actually do make decisions about this and actually plan and manage this rather than what we've done largely up to now, which is just let each crisis erupt and then try and sort of react to it, which will involve great loss of human life and great suffering. So I've been talking to Gaia Vince. We've been talking about her book, Nomad Century, How to Survive the Climate Upheaval, which is out in the UK from Alan Lane. Gaia, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks so much for talking to me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening.